0: God, we're preparing to come to your word, and we pray that as we do, you would humble us and make us teachable, because naturally our hearts are prone to to go our own way. They're prone to selfishness and stubbornness, and so tenderize our hearts so that the word may be massaged deep within us. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Would you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Revelation chapter 2? If you're using one of the Bibles in your row, uh, it's on page 1029. Um, If you don't have a Bible, would you take that one home as our gift to you? We would love for that to be used daily rather than just on on Sundays. We're studying uh, over the last few weeks, we've been studying these seven letters from the Lord Jesus— written by the Apostle John, to seven churches in Asia Minor. Uh, These were written sometime in the last quarter, probably the last decade of the first century. Uh, John was writing them from exile on the Isle of Patmos, and he sent them to be delivered and read to all seven churches. And so they're going in geographic order, making something of a horseshoe, and the first was read at Ephesus, the second was read at Smyrna. Uh, this third one is at Pergamum. Now let's talk about Pergamum a little bit. Uh, it, it was a thoroughly pagan city. Um, you may remember from last week, we, we saw the, in the letter from Smyrna, our letter to Smyrna, Jesus talked about the synagogue of Satan in Smyrna. There were some wicked people. But Jesus, in talking about Pergamum, actually says it's the throne of Satan. That's how, that's how wicked this place is. It doesn't mean that, that, this was, that the devil had a P.O. box there. Uh, the reference to his throne is a reference to strong pagan presence in the city. We know it had major temples and cults devoted to Zeus, Athena, Dionysus, uh, and to Asclepius. Now, Asclepius, if you're in the medical field, you know that name, particular fame. He was sometimes called the Pergamene God, uh, but he was viewed as the God of healing, and you've seen that symbol before, a staff with a snake on it. That was the symbol of Asclepius. Sometimes today, Christians will, will sort of, Christian hospitals will sometimes redo that with uh, Moses' staff with the serpent on it, but it originally came from Asclepius, now, of course, it's not surprising with such background that these Christians were living under great hostility. Um, there were banquets, for example, for the gods, and these were the social events of the community, and all you had to do was bring an offering to the gods, and the Christians wouldn't do that. The Christians also would not bow before Caesar they would not say Caesar is Lord and so there was great hostility in Pergamum towards Christians. Pergamum was a proud city one that boasted in its education they were innovative particularly in the design and production of parchment uh, a a very rudimentary form of paper in fact the word parchment comes from the word Pergamum. Pergamum had a library uh, which boasted over 200,000 books available Well, to those who had such a love of words, Jesus has come to speak a few words to them. Listen to Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 12. This is the word of God. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Some of you last week took note of an illustration that I alluded to in my closing prayer after the sermon last week concerning the relationship between the church and the world, and I want to flesh it out because I think it's a very helpful, a very useful illustration, and the illustration is when a ship is at sea, we fully expect it to be surrounded by water. And no matter what, the ship is safe as long as the water stays on the outside. But when the water starts to leak in, the captain and the crew better fix things quickly or the boat is going to be shipwrecked soon. I think that is a great illustration of the relationship between the church and the world. The church, by the design of God, is to exist in the world. We're surrounded by it. We're never called to go hide out in monasteries and have no contact with the world. We're supposed to be salt and light in the world. But the problem is when the world starts to leak into the church. Just as leaking water can sink a great ship, the world seeping into the church can be the death of the church. And that's what's going on at Pergamum here. And it's of great concern to our Lord. I think one of the ways for us to view this letter is in light of last week. Last week, we, we saw the church at Smyrna. The church at Smyrna was a heavily persecuted church, and the Lord commended them for their faithfulness. In other words, Smyrna, the letter to Smyrna, was about how to, the church is to live in the world. Pergamum is a warning about what happens when the world is starting to seep into the church. What should that relationship between the church and the world be? Well, you heard it in our Old Testament reading from Leviticus 20. The church is to be a holy people, called out of the world to be a reflection of the Lord Jesus himself. He gives us a new heart and makes us new creations. Uh, the Apostle Paul tells us we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Jesus saved us for himself that we might be renewed in his image and we might reflect the image of Christ to the ends of the earth. But sometimes, instead of being holy, and called out from the world, the church compromises with the world and lets the world determine the church's agenda. That's the situation here at Pergamum, and Jesus has some very strong but encouraging words to the church, assuming that the church responds as they and we ought to. There's three things this morning that we're going to look at, first is position, second is peril, and third is promise. So first, I want you to see the position of this church at Pergamum. Look at verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. God doesn't sugarcoat this. They are living in a land of deep darkness and paganism, and it's an area where you'd be, you'd be surprised, you're surprised to find a church thriving there. But they are. And it was a scary place to be positioned as a Christian. I have an uncle who for many years was a fisherman and, and crabber in Alaska. And if you've seen the show The Deadliest Catch, you know that's, that's one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. And so he and I were talking a few weeks ago and I asked if there were ever any moments where he thought he might die out there on the Bering Sea. And he said just once, and he told the story of being uh, coming in from fishing, and a terrible storm came upon them. They issued a mayday call from the boat, and then the winds came, and the waves damaged the antenna so that they could hear voices on the other end, but nobody could hear their position. No, nobody could hear where they were. They were in this terrible storm, and nobody knew their position. The Lord says here, I know where you dwell, I, I'm watching you. I have my eye upon you. I know every hair upon your head. I know everything that you're enduring. What an immense comfort for these storm-tossed believers! The Lord knows them. It, wherever you are in life right now, whatever your affliction you're enduring, the Lord knows where you dwell. It should be a great comfort to us. He knows the environment in which He's placed us. He knows the hardships and the temptations we're facing even at wicked Pergamum. And it's interesting, he doesn't say, you need to flee that wicked city. He doesn't say, you need to go to safe harbor. I think the reason he doesn't say that is because a ship at harbor may be safe, but that's not what ships were designed to do. These believers at Pergamum were not designed to hide away in safety. They were designed and redeemed to be beacons of light in the darkness of Pergamum. They knew that to hold fast to their profession meant almost certain persecution. In fact, they knew it firsthand not too long before this letter was written. We don't know how long before, but there was a dear brother who had worshiped alongside of them who shared fellowship meals with them, who was bold for the faith, who perhaps exhorted the brothers and the sisters there at Pergamum to greater faithfulness. His name was Antipas. And he had been a believer in that church. And Jesus recalls here that Antipas was killed for the faith because he wouldn't bow down to Caesar. And and even in the language, there's a sort of ominous line towards the end of verse 13 even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. You know, Antipas wasn't alone as a witness. All Christians are called to be witnesses. So, Acts 1.8, the Lord Jesus says, you shall be my witnesses. This is speaking of the task that all Christians have. Beloved, hear me. If you're a believer, you have the task to be a witness to Jesus Christ proclaiming to a lost and dying world the excellencies of our Savior. You are his witnesses. But what's interesting is that word witness is the word martus. It's the root of our word martyr. How did that happen linguistically? How did the the language evolve over time? Well, so often to be a Christian witness in the first century meant martyrdom. And instead of saying, get into safe harbor, you know what the Lord's saying to him? He's really saying the words of Isaiah 43, verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. Dear friends, no matter what position you've been called to, no matter what your circumstances are, the Lord Jesus knows and he can give sufficient grace for whatever you are facing. When you live at Satan's awful throne, there is only one thing that can help you, and that is the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. Most of us probably know the name John Newton. He's famous for his hymns. The most famous, of course, was Amazing Grace. But you may not realize he was also a very faithful, wonderful pastor, especially later in life. And for a time, he served a church in London. And he said one day of London, London appears to me like a sea wherein most people, speaking of Christians, are tossed by storms and suffer shipwreck of their faith. And he stressed the need of having what he called London grace. And he explained it was grace to uphold the people of God, to live distinct, holy lives in a lost and dying world. Now, of course, all of us need grace, but it made me wonder, is there a such thing as Beaufort grace? You know, the grace God gives based on the position and the situation to which he's called us. Uh, if you know me, you know I love this community, born and raised here, would love to be buried here. But we need Beaufort grace, don't we? Every community has its own temptations, its own trials, and I, I was thinking about the, the complexion of being in this position in Buford, and what does Beaufort grace mean for us? What kind of grace do we need to be faithful Christians in Beaufort? And I thought about a couple of things. I thought of you who are in the military, and you describe the darkness of the world in which you live, oftentimes filled with profanity and pornography and worldliness and 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 people seeking just promotion and self-promotion and that you speak of the temptations to accommodate those things and you pray that the Lord would uphold you and so we pray in that case for Beaufort Grace that you might remain a holy people even in the darkest of places now perhaps the more insidious Area we need, Beaufort Grace, is the temptation towards constant leisure Uh, that's so frequent here. We're in a retirement community, and there are many who have worked many years in business. They move here with the intention of just drifting out their final years. Sitting on the golf course or the beach or at home, there's nothing wrong with retirement. I, I don't believe there's anything wrong with retirement, but we have to acknowledge that with retirement, comes a greater stewardship of free time than you have ever had in your life. So it may have been that when you worked an eight-hour day, you only had a few hours of free time that you were responsible for. Now you're responsible for lots of free time. And so in your retirement, you ought to be more useful to God than you were in your early years. You, You have more time that you're a steward of. And you need Beaufort Grace, retirees to not fall into the mindset that your entire life is about leisure or your entire life is about doing what you want to do from day to day, taking it easy. Your entire life is to be consecrated in service to Jesus Christ. You need Beaufort Grace so you don't fall into that leisure trap, but rather that you would run with perseverance the race marked out for you. And the race does not end with retirement The race ends when Christ calls you home. All right, now that I've made all my older friends angry with me, it's only because I love you. The Lord Jesus knows where you dwell. And whatever he has called you to do, and wherever he has called you to be faithful, he has the grace to sustain you, as he did with the people of Pergamum. Of course, there's nothing about your position that he doesn't know. He knows more about it than you do. If you've ever been out in the water here in Buford, out in the boat, you know that if you don't know the waters, you're always in danger. You're always in peril. There's sandbars. There's oyster rakes. There's all sorts of things that, can get in trouble, that you can get in trouble with if you're not paying attention. And so the Lord Jesus, looking at them, saying, I know your position, says there's a second thing. I also know your peril. I know that there is danger that you don't really see right now. And so he speaks to them about this great peril that lays ahead for them. For the church at Pergamum, if you had asked the members, what is the greatest peril, they would say Caesar and those who want to take our lives out there. Do you see what Jesus says here? The greatest peril is not persecution out there it's compromise in here, that you would drift into worldliness. It's worldliness leaking into the ship, and he's going to point out several ways that worldliness is leaking in. Now, this is a reminder that the devil has more than one way to attack the church. Sometimes he comes about as a roaring lion seeking to devour, doesn't he? As in persecution. Sometimes, according to 2 Corinthians 11, he comes as an angel of light, a false teacher who leads people astray by distorting the scriptures. The situation for Pergamum was that Satan couldn't conquer the church by direct attack from the outside, and so he sent minions in to corrupt the people of God from the inside. Of course, they don't know Satan's using them for that. They think they're right in what they're teaching, but what they're teaching doesn't line up with God's word and they're introducing false teaching into the midst. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, It seems what he's saying there is, not only have you tolerated these false teachers, but they're starting to build up a following, and the church is in great danger. Now, let's talk about these false teachers. Do you you know who Balaam was? Most of us remember Balaam from these scenes in Numbers 22, 3, and 4. Balaam's hired uh, by the king of Moab to curse Israel. Balaam goes to do it time after time. God stops him and he ends up delivering a blessing instead of a curse. That famous scene where his donkey sidetracks him. But if that's all you remember about Balaam, you actually don't remember what the first thing a Jew would have thought of. In in Numbers 25, the main story, we're not going to look at it for sake of time, but the main story is how Balaam led the church to compromise. Let me just read verses 1 and 2. Numbers 25, 1 and 2. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These people invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Ah, Pergamum, that makes sense. You're surrounded by false gods. And just as Balaam led the people of Israel to compromise and worship false gods, that's exactly what's happening in your midst. Some false teachers are saying, you know, it's not really that big a deal to bow down before Caesar and say Caesar is Lord. As long as you know in your heart Jesus is really Lord, it's not really a big deal to go to these banquets and eat, uh, eat alongside these, these idol worshipers as they worship uh, all these false gods. It's really no big deal as long as in your heart you believe Jesus is God. Ever since that incident, Balaam became the prototype for how false teaching corrupts the church. You know, false teaching never changes a church overnight. Satan is far more slu- uh, subtle than that. It's a slow drift. Boaters know how you can throw out an anchor, but if the anchor doesn't catch, you can be fishing and, or, or swimming or whatever, not paying attention, and all of a sudden, an hour later, you realize you're, you don't have a clue where you are, and you may be in great danger. That's what happened with the church here. It's so easy to drift. And do you realize this, beloved? Churches never drift into holiness. In fact, Christians never drift into holiness. We drift into worldliness. It's the world that surrounds us. We drift into worldliness. We do not drift into holiness. And so Christians who are careless about our spiritual lives drift into worldliness. That's why I called this letter a letter to a drifting church. It's amazing to me. I thought about this a lot this week. As diverse as Satan's methods are, whether it's persecution or false teaching, almost always he goes into churches promoting two things, idolatry and sexual immorality. We see that here. We see it all throughout history. They're the universal epitomes of worldliness, and so that's why when I, uh, in our Old Testament reading, I read from the book of Leviticus, when the Jewish people were delivered from slavery in Egypt, when they're preparing to enter the land of the Canaanites, God gave them warning after warning against those two things, sexual immorality and idol worship. The whole first chapter, for example, Leviticus 18, two chapters before what I read earlier, the whole first half of the chapter is a warning against sexual immorality. The second half of the chapter says you shall not make sacrifices to Molech. Why those two things? Because sexual immorality and idolatry define life in Egypt, it defined life in Canaan, and dear ones, it defines life in America, doesn't it? You and I have to be as much on the lookout for these things as our brothers and sisters did 2,000 years ago. Life In Egypt, life in Canaan, life in America is defined by idolatry and immorality. But how is the kingdom of God defined? You shall be holy as I am holy. Over and over and over again, we are told that throughout the scriptures. We need to be reminded of the peril in which you and I live, that there is always potential. To make a shipwreck of our faith. We tend to worry about how the church will survive the outside world as our world becomes more and more hostile towards Christianity. But the greater peril is how the church will survive if the world gets in. Think with me for a moment. How many churches do you know? Just think about this. How many churches do you know that are more than 100 years old? You've probably been to quite a few. Of those, how many of them are still gospel-preaching, faithful churches? I've been in dozens of historic churches. I can probably count on one hand the churches that I've been to that are still faithfully proclaiming the gospel after 100, 200, 300 years. Many churches, which once fought bravely for the sake of the gospel, like Pergamum was doing, they allowed the water to leak in, and the gospel integrity of the church was shipwrecked. If we were to go through a tour of the pages of church history, we would see page after page after page of churches, which were once mighty vessels for Christ— Now shipwrecked because they took on the waters of the world. You know, churches tend to just have a a shelf life of a hundred years, if that. A hundred years of faithfulness, if that. Not because the Lord puts an expiration date on them, but because the world has such a shaping influence upon them. Let me let's step into our world. How does this happen? I just want to think about churches that just two decades ago were proclaiming the gospel that are no longer today. Uh, You have to draw connections with the larger LGBTQ issues in our wider culture, and there's a sad trajectory for churches, for Christian schools, for colleges, for organizations and institutions to follow suit. You start out with a brave defense of the truth, a celebration of of what the church has believed for 2,000 years about sexuality, of marriage, of sex within marriage, that marriage is between one man and one woman for life, that it is good, that that is beautiful, that it's best for human flourishing and God's way. The church starts that way. We are there. That is what we believe. But then what tends to happen as the world wears down the church and seeps into the church, and the church doesn't notice, the church starts to move into another direction. At first, there's silence. We just don't talk about this anymore. We don't want to offend people. And then there's what we could call complexification. Well, it's not just as simple as that. You know, the Bible, the Bible really doesn't say that much about homosexuality. It doesn't say much about gender. Even though for 2,000 years the church has been absolutely crystal clear on matters of sexuality and gender, hasn't it? And then the next step is a pivot. Well, aren't there more important issues that we should be thinking about? Shouldn't we be talking about missions? Shouldn't we be talking about poverty and justice? Shouldn't we be talking about something else? I mean, being being heterosexual isn't what saves you let's stop being so bold about this. We're too distracted from evangelizing or church planting or social justice. And then what happens is where we see so many churches today, they went from maybe two decades ago boldly standing on biblical principles to now looking at those of us who hold to biblical principles and finding themselves at odds with us and calling us archaic and narrow-minded. A great example would be the thre- theological drift that is happening in real time right now with, with Andy Stanley. Uh, I don't know if any of you listen to Andy Stanley, who's son of Dr. Charles Stanley, pastor of a massive church in Atlanta. And he has gone through that exact drift to the point of where last week his church hosted a conference with same-sex married couples speaking at that conference. And disparaging those of us who hold to biblical sexuality— that's how the church drifts into worldliness. It's, it's like Hemingway described going bankrupt. It happened very gradually, and then all of a sudden. When we toy with worldliness, peril awaits. Well, there's a third thing, and that's a promise. It's a twofold promise. That's not surprising because of how Jesus identified himself in the beginning. He says this, the word of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Pergamum, you're you're famous for your words, for your massive libraries. Well, Jesus has a word for you, and it comes from the double-edged sword of his mouth. And you can imagine, for the Christians there, against the backdrop of a sword-wielding government, a sword-wielding savior was a great comfort. Now, the Roman sword, short sword, it was very short. It looked sort of like a tongue. And so when Jesus is saying, uh the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword he's saying my word is like that it cuts both ways now this is not original language for revelation hebrews says the word of god is sharper than any two-edged sword uh, paul calls the the word of god the sword of the spirit It's the sword that pricks the consciences of men and women. It's the sword that wounds the sinner's pride. It cuts away all of our defenses and our camouflage and all of our hypocrisy and cuts to the core of who we are. It's been said that the sword, the word of God, is the only sword that you stick into a man and it makes him alive. From this sword comes a promise, a double-edged promise to Pergamum. On the one side, there's the threat therefore repent I if not I will come to you soon and war against them with a the word of my mouth word of my mouth I don't think Jesus is talking about the final judgment I think he is talking about coming in by the power of the word preached and purging his church and he's speaking of of waging war to protect the purity of the church how does that happen The text isn't entirely clear. Perhaps he would so convict them by the preaching of the word that they would repent and believe the gospel, or perhaps he would so convict them that they would get upset and leave. But regardless, Jesus, by his word, is going to protect the purity of the church. Or perhaps, by his word, he was going to stir up the elders at Pergamum to do the church discipline that they should have done. They tolerated this false teaching, and it started to spread like cancer, and it needs to be excised. It needs to be removed, and so perhaps Jesus was going to stir up the hearts of the elders to finally do church discipline, but Jesus says, I will come soon and war against them. I do not know what that means exactly, but I know this. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God, and if Jesus says he is coming to wage war against you, that ought to get your attention. I wonder if you think, uh, maybe he's bluffing. You know, there's a lot of different religions. You choose to believe Christianity, I believe in something else. Christianity may work for you, not for me, you do you, I'll do me. You know, sometimes if we're talking to somebody who says that, we will talk about the wonderful promises of grace that the gospel gives us. But Jesus actually goes in a different direction. And he says, if that's you, I'm coming to wage war with you. If you will not repent, I will wage war with you. You know, in this life, you can test God all you want. You can disobey God. You can deny God but you cannot avoid the promise Jesus makes here. I will come soon and wage war. And those who are compromising the gospel with worldly Christianity will be dealt with one way or another. And so what's the warning? You need to repent in in verse 16. Therefore, repent, turn. So often repentance is the missing element in our gospel presentations. We often hear people say things like, come to Jesus. Come for your sins to be forgiven. Come to Jesus so you don't have to feel bad anymore. Come to Jesus to live forever. Come to Jesus for purpose in your life. But what about this? Come to Jesus and repent of the fact that you have been sinning against the living God. That's really what the gospel is repent. Turn from that. Ask God's forgiveness that you have sinned against him in thought, word, and deed. And so Jesus is saying here, not only do those who have been propagating this teaching need to repent, not only those who've been led astray need to repent, but those of you who have tolerated it, you need to repent. I'll come to you soon. But there's another side of the sword Another side of the promise. He says in verse 17, latter part, to the one who conquers I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. In saying conquer here, it's speaking of one who by the grace of Christ remains faithful to the end, one who doesn't fall away, It doesn't succumb to the world's teachings and the world's seduction. He is the one who will conquer. And he says, here's what you will receive, dear ones. First, he says, hidden manna. Manna was that miraculous bread that Jesus provided for his people in the wilderness wanderings, that bread from heaven. It was inexplicable how it came and how it went. It was a symbol of God's sustaining, life-giving power, and Jesus, back in John, called himself true manna from heaven. And the idea here is, and we need to hear this, he says, dear ones, if you remain faithful, no matter what it will cost you in this world's eyes, no matter what misery may seem to await you, if you oppose the world, I will give you hidden manna. I will give you an inward sustaining, an inward joy that nothing in this world can explain. That's a promise from Jesus Christ. You remain faithful. I will give you an inward joy that nothing in this world can explain. The world can take everything from you. That's fine. I'll feed you. I've done it before, Jesus is saying and I will feed you till you are satisfied. I'll give you hidden manna that the world knows nothing about. And then there's this promise of a white stone and a new name written on it. Now that one's not nearly as clear, is it? There's, there's several documented uses of white stones in the ancient world. One of them was for juries or judges. Somebody was on trial and they would submit their vote, their guilty or non-guilty verdict. A black stone meant guilty. A white stone meant not guilty. I don't know if that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here, but it sure is encouraging, isn't it? I was in a fraternity. I'm not proud of that, Uh, and every year we would have a new class of Of potential pledges and then we would have a vote and and we all got two basically marbles a white marble or a a black marble white meant yes no meant that the person the black marble meant no that's where we we call that blackballing somebody just took one person to blackball somebody jesus is saying you know the whole world can blackball you the whole world can say you are guilty, but all that matters is my verdict, and that's what this white stone uh, signified. White stones were also used as admission, admission tickets to banquets, even perhaps wedding banquets. So for these Christians, it means whatever the world's verdict is on you, whatever your friend's may say, whatever your friends on Instagram may think of you, whatever your boss may do to you, just know that Jesus is watching and Jesus knows where you dwell, and he will give you the only acquittal that actually matters. Because at the end of the age, the only thing that will matter is not what this world thought of you, whether you could play the game, but the opinion of Jesus Christ towards you. The world and all of its opinions will be utterly destroyed by fire, but where you stand with Jesus Christ will last forever. And Jesus is saying, if you refuse to join with the world and its wickedness and you remain faithful to me, you will join me in my everlasting joy and righteousness. You may be uh, excluded from every society in this world, but I have a society that waits for you that gives, that is full of joy unimaginable. It says on this symbol, this white stone is a new name known only the one who receives it. What's the name? I don't know. It's only for the one who receives it. It's a picture of the intimacy of God with his people. Revelation 22, verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. What a word for us, what a word for us who often exhaust ourselves trying to figure out how to on the one hand remain faithful to Jesus Christ and on the other hand stay in the world's good graces. And Jesus says to us, stop trying. All that matters is my verdict about you. And if you are trusting in me, then the verdict is not guilty, because I've taken your guilt. What a word for us who are caught in the back, of, in the back and forth of, of wanting to be faithful to the, wor- to the Lord, but also getting at times swept away by the world. Living in compromise with the world, dear ones, does not have to be the end of your story. There's grace, there is hope as you turn and fix your eyes upon Jesus Christ. This letter to Pergamum is telling us that only when the church repents, only when the, the church walks in steadfast obedience to its King as his holy people, whatever the world may press upon them, the Lord Jesus will say, These are my people, they're living in my way, because my name is upon them. Enter into the joy of your master. Do we want to grow certainly as a church? Uh, do we want to grow as a church? Certainly. But how do we grow as a church? Is it by mimicking the world and becoming more like the world? Certainly not. It's by growing in holiness. And as we find the glory of the Lord to captivate more and more of our hearts, and it radiates through us in holiness, that holiness attracts the world to the beauty of the gospel. How do we apply this text couple of things. One, I want to touch briefly on this refrain that keeps popping up in these letters. And Jesus says it in in verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, how do I know if I have an ear to hear? Uh, how, uh, How do I know? Well, Jesus says that's easy. Do you hear? Now, we need to get a little deeper there. To borrow from Jesus' parable of the sower, he talked about the words that were thrown out onto the rocky path. They landed there, and within just a few minutes, the birds plucked them up, and no, no seed took. Is that you? you? You sit through the sermon, you hear it, perhaps you, you, you amen it, whatever it is, but then you walk away, and the seed bears no fruit in your life. You are what the Puritans used to call sermon tasters they would nibble upon it and then leave it behind. But if these words sink down into your soul, that you would become more devoted to Christ and more desirous of holiness and and more on guard against worldliness, then that's a sign that you have ears to hear. And you'll go from here out those doors with more care and carefulness about your own soul because you have heard the words of Jesus today. So he says to us, him who has an ear, let him hear. Second, we need to realize that we as a church are not immune to Satan's attacks, especially of idolatry and sexual immorality. I don't see these as areas right now in which Satan is gaining ground in this church, but we have to remain ever vigilant. I, I heard the story of a missionary who lived on top of a mountain with his family, his wife, and his children. One day in his yard, he found a a plant that was growing up, and he was told that it's poisonous. It, It was a toxic plant. It would kill his children if they ate it. And so, of course, he did what anybody would do, and he cut it down. But a few days later, it was sprouting back up. So this time he tried to pull it, but he couldn't get the roots, so it came back up. He tried to dig it up, but the rock was too hard, and he couldn't get it. So what he did was every day, every single day, for the love of his family, He went out there and checked to see if it had sprung back up. And if it did, he would pull it again. His family was too valuable to him to allow such poison. Friends, we have to do that. We have to constantly assess, is Satan gaining ground here? Through worldliness, through idolatry, through sexual immorality. And we have to pluck it up before it starts to lead some astray last, as a church, we have a corporate duty to guard one another from drifting. How many people have you known in your life who once seemed to be sincere Christians, but had had drifted away? I don't ask that question so much to draw attention to them, but let me ask you, what did you do to try to draw them back? See, as a church, we have a mutual duty to keep one another, to help keep one another from drifting, to go after one another. You know, this is why you and I need Christian friendships. People who will speak truth into our life, say things that we don't want to hear. Brother, I don't think you should be dating a woman like that. She doesn't seem to be a believer. I think you need to be careful about how much you're working. It it seems you're working so much that that church and your relationship with Christ have become a low priority. It, It seems that you're spending your life in leisure and doing nothing for the sake of Jesus Christ. Those are hard words, but those are the kind of words that you and I need to hear from brothers and sisters who love us And so as a church, our lives should be so closely interwoven into one another that if Satan tries to draw one person away, there will be five of us pulling you back. We have a mutual duty to guard one another from drifting. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word. How it teaches, instructs, rebukes us, and encourages us. Father, I pray that you would guard us against worldliness. And that doesn't mean that we are out of the world. We are to do our ministry. We are to be gospel lights in the world. But I pray that the world wouldn't get into us as it was at Pergamum, as it was through so many churches in history. Protect us and bless us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.